it was probably um, December. It was during the NFL uh, playoffs, so I know it was at least December. And um, uh, there was a there was a ball game downtown, a Thunder game downtown, that I bought the family tickets for uh, because uh, my daughter and her group were singing the national anthem that night, and um, um, didn't want to miss that. You know, it's kind of one once in a lifetime deal. And uh, but uh, at at that point, we had invited Rhonda's brother and and his son to come down and go to the Thunder game. And um, so some of us had really good seats, and some of us, you know, struggled with nosebleeds on that night. But but we, we had a good time. And um, but one of the things that was going on it was the NFL playoffs. And if you remember, it was at, I'm going to guess it was three years ago. It was the, what was all the buzz in in sports news was the fact that Tim Tebow had taken over the Denver Broncos in the middle of the season. If you remember that, after being uh, you know kind of. Uh, they had all kinds of trouble in Denver. This was way before Peyton Manning. And um, he had gotten them to the playoffs. And they were in the playoffs on this Saturday night game. I think it was a Saturday night, maybe a Friday night game. There, it was a Saturday night game. They were in the playoffs. And uh, Ken and I, Rhonda's brother, were really interested in the outcome of that game. So we taped it. We DVR'd it before we left the house for the, for the Thunder game. And did, we just didn't want to talk to anybody about it, Right? <laughs> Didn't turn, didn't turn the uh, sports uh, channel on or the radio on the way down, all that kind of thing. But, you know, the scoreboard is all important, right? And so um, I went out in the lobby of the Thunder game at about the, you know, the third quarter or so, maybe early in the fourth quarter. I was getting something to drink or something and just happened. Just happened to glance up at a TV screen. And it was late in the third quarter and the game was already out of control and the, on the Denver game. So when I got back home, the only thing left to do, Fred, was just erase the game. You weren't going to watch it when you knew the outcome, right? Just not going not gonna to do that. The outcome is all important. I, I heard a news report this week, a sports report, about how they at one time took the, um, uh, took the, um, I, I, John, I think you were talking about this earlier this week. Uh, at one time they had, they did this experiment on games where they took the uh, scoreboard away, or, or there was a problem with the scoreboard, one of the two, and not having the scoreboard made the, made the game kind of boring. The scoreboard matters. Now, my game that I was interested in suddenly didn't matter to me anymore to watch because I knew the end of the game. I knew the outcome. What I think you and I have got to come to terms with as we study the book of Revelation is that what we're looking at, and we'll be just mainly in the book of Revelation today, we're looking at the scoreboard at the end of the game, at the end of the all-important game. We are looking at how this game turns out, how this life turns out, how history turns out. Can I tell you something? History is going somewhere. Lots of people don't think that. Lots of people think, as it always was, so it always shall be. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that history is going somewhere and it will reach a dramatic conclusion. And the book of Revelation kind of tells us a little bit about that. And we can see the scoreboard at the end of the game. Now, 
Uh, you and I know that, that the book of Revelation is one of the most difficult uh, sections of the Bible to understand. Uh, it's written in very cryptic literature. But to those who originally read it, it probably wasn't quite as confusing. In fact, it may not have been confusing at all. For instance, let me give you just kind of a, a little clue. If I said White House, uh, the White House, what am I talking about? I'm talking about Washington or I'm talking about the President of the United States. Did you know 200 years ago we would have no idea what we, if the paper said, the White House said today, somebody would say, what, the houses don't talk. There's symbolism in the White House, right? If I said, okay, this is even more contemporary. If I had said seven years ago, or probably less than that, if I had said, um, I'm going to see the Oklahoma City Thunder tonight. People looked at me like I was nuts. Like, what, are you a weatherman? What's the deal? Because there was no such thing as the Oklahoma City Thunder seven years ago. Probably more like five years ago. And yet, it's become a part of our culture and a part of our language, right? When I say, hey, I went to the thunder, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? But somebody in another culture or somebody in a different age would not have any clue. All right? If, um, if I said, um, oh, I wrote another one of these. If I said, um, um, I'm kind of nervous about what's going on on Wall Street. A couple hundred years ago, no one would have had any clue what we were talking about, right? Okay, so the idea is here, all these have common meaning to you and me. They're part of our cultural nomenclature, but if we lived in a different day, we wouldn't have understood. My guess is, my guess is the people that John wrote to would have understood the nomenclature a lot better than you and me. So what we'll try to do is, is to, uh, today at least, we'll try to look at the scene, at least a scene, from the end of the game. We'll look at the scoreboard a little bit. Now John received um, this vision of Revelation uh, while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. Now, it's interesting, I just Googled Patmos one day this week, and it's kind of like a tourist location now, but I guarantee you this was not a pleasant experience for John. We think that he worked all day as an elderly gentleman. He worked all day in probably a rock quarry or something like that. And the vision came to him at night when he was trying to rest. That's kind of interesting to me. Christians were persecuted in that day. John was, um, was persecuted in different ways. And so... When he addresses this stuff, he's addressing it primarily to people who had felt somewhat that God had abandoned them. They wondered, where is history going? They wondered, where is God in all of this? And so John has unfolded to him a series of visions, uh, and, and in these visions, God delivers his people while bring, bringing judgment on God's enemies. That's kind of the basic story. Uh, the book starts out with seven short letters to the persecuted churches in Asia Minor. It gives them a kind of encouragement, but it also gives them correction and warning. And then we're told about God's throne. John has a vision of God's throne in chapter 4. It's just a beautiful chapter. 
And when we get to chapter 5, which is where we'll today be today, there is an absolute crisis in heaven. Can you think about that? There being a crisis in heaven. What's the crisis? It comes about in verse 3 and 4, about in there. We'll start in verse 5. Do what? There is a scroll presented in John's vision. And John himself is weeping because he wants to see what's in it. But there's nobody able to open the scroll. In fact, if I read it right, it says that John, uh, in, in the NIV, I believe, what I was reading earlier this morning, it says John wept and wept in verse 4. What does that mean? He didn't just have a tear. He's, I, I like that, that um, ex- expression, Irene. He's inconsolable. Okay? Now, let's read what happens next. We're in this, you've got you to gotta put yourself, uh, by the way, you can read over the fourth and fifth chapters of, of uh, Revelation and uh, get lost in some of the imagery and miss the drama. This is a highly dramatic moment. Heaven has stopped. No one is worthy to open the book. And then John sees this. Bob, would you start with verse 5 and read 5, 6, and 7? Okay, this is high drama here, and we're going to try to unpack it a little bit. Let's, let's talk about the players a little bit. There is one who comes forward. He is called at the beginning the lion. Okay, now we've got to deal with the lion from Old Testament predictive scripture. Um, Steve, would you go to Isaiah 11.1? 1? Somebody else go to Genesis 49.9? He'll go there. Thank you, John. Uh, let's, let's also go to Isaiah 53. We're going to read verse 7, 8, and 9. Who will get that one? Thank you. And we'll go to Psalm 89, 17. Who will get that one? Thank you, Eileen. And then Zechariah. There, here's the scholar. We're going to find Zechariah. Zechariah 4, 10. Thank you, Jopi. Next, you got plenty of time to look it up, so that'll be good. You've got to cheat anyway. you got an iPad there. That'll, that'll get you there. Uh, we're going to be in Zechariah, by the way, next week. Zechariah 9, and we'll be in Matthew 21. So if you're reading ahead, it's, we'll tie Zechariah 9 with Matthew 21. Okay, now, now, uh, I had to look up my notes for a minute because I got thinking, are there nine chapters in Zechariah? Yeah, there are. We'll be in nine next week. Okay, now, who's the lion? This is a pretty easy one. Okay, uh, let's, let, who's got Genesis 49-9? Uh, Thank you, John. Like a lioness, he bears 
Jacob is, is giving blessings and, and offering kind of predictions over his, his 12 sons, and he calls Judah the lion. Now, it's interesting because we're going to talk about a lion of lions here. Now, so let's go to Isaiah 11.1. Uh, 1. Steve, is that the one you got? Okay, now from Jesse's line, and if we continue in, in that vein, it's going to call him at some point. It's going to call the one who's coming the lion of the tribe of Judah. So it's the lion, the lion from among the lions. All right. Uh, any Old Testament scholar, if you talked about the lion, they, they, would, be talk, they would know it was talking about um, uh, the tribe of Judah, in particular, this one who was coming, who would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that was Messianic prophecy, so we, we kind of get it caught here. Now there's also, there are 24 elders surrounding the throne that are talked here in, in uh, verse 6 and 7. Those elders now, uh, in, in verse 5, for now, let's just say they represent God's people. God's people gathered in God's presence around his throne. These are leaders, but they represent all of God's people gathered, okay? So uh, we've got the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah. This lion is in the throne room, all right? As, it, as are these 24 elders representing the gathered uh, presence of God's people, okay? Now, but the visage changes, or the, or the imagery changes in verse 6. What happens to the lion? <laughs> he becomes a lamb. The lion that's from the tribe of Judah, from the root of David that Steve wrote about a minute ago, can open the book. In verse 6, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, they, you can read about them in verse 4, in, in chapter 4, and the elders, a lamb standing as in slain. Okay, so now the attention of all of heaven goes to the lamb who was slain, who was by the throne of God. Now, who's this? I think it's pretty clear who this is. Um, let's read about him. Isaiah 53, verse 7, 8, and 9. Who's got that? The lamb who was slain. Isaiah 53. Let's look at another place. Psalm 89, verse 17. Okay, hang on to that one a minute because we're going to talk about this idea of seven horns in just a second. Now, what Eileen read for us there is talking about... Um, uh, talking about seven horns on this lamb. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, it? He doesn't appear at this point in the vision as a man, but as, as a lamb slain with seven horns. Now that seven horns, according to what Eileen read for us, represents power. All right? Uh, also has eyes. You catch the seven eyes? It's kind of a funny picture here. All right? 
seven horns, seven eyes. Let's read from um, uh, Zechariah what the eyes might represent. Zechariah 4.10. That's you, Jopi, isn't it? There's a number here of seven. The eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro. Uh, does it say covering the earth? What does it say? Jopi, that last, last phrase. Throughout the whole earth. Now, the idea that you need to catch here is that the eyes of God, this perfect number seven, see everything that's going on, and they have watchful care over your life. Those, that's an idea, and the idea of the, of the horns has an idea of power and authority, and both of those are attributed to the lamb that was slain. Okay, that's kind of important here. The victorious lion now appears as a lamb slain. Now, I want you to see what happens. It's a, to me, it's dramatic. Verse 7. You remember, John has wept and wept. Because there's no one worthy to open the book. And this figure comes forward, identified both as the lion and the lamb. I find that interesting. Um, Sally, do they still teach in school that marches in like a lion, out like a lamb? Do you still do artwork and craft work on that? Not as much as we used to. We used to. Yeah, it, it was on all the bulletin boards, you know. I, I, that's the one I remember. April showers bring May flowers, you know, and all that stuff. Well, this is not as trite as that. I just have me think, in like a lion, out like a lamb. Well, this is, is the idea of the lamb and the lion are one. Now, the crisis in heaven is what? No one's able to open the book. Who's got the book? God himself sitting on the great white throne of judgment. So what happens? The lamb slain steps forward and says, yes, sir, I'll take it. Wow. There is one, but only one. Do you catch the word that I put in your blank here is decisive. Do you catch this decisive moment? The one, the only one in all of eternity, in all of history, the only one in all of heaven, qualified, steps forward and says, I'll take it. And he is able to open the book. Decisive. I want to follow that kind of leader. How about you? This is a bold move. Now, I read a little bit this week about incongruities. There, there are all kinds of incongruities in our world. Many things in life seem incongruous. Um, that 13 British colonies would eventually become the greatest economic and military power in history. That's kind of, doesn't fit. It's kind of incongruous. That a haberdasher named Harry S. Truman from Missouri would become the American president who decided to use atomic weapons. Kind of doesn't fit. That a nation founded to offer life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness to its citizens, would soon come to legalize the destruction of infants in the womb. Did a little research on that. I asked Rhonda this morning at breakfast, how many abortions since 1973? Your answer? Three million? Guess what? 
55 million. Why do we grieve the Holocaust and don't grieve that? I'm not against grieving the Holocaust. Please don't hear me wrong. What's the matter with this picture? Do you realize today we're praying desperately for five little babies and another one who's desperately ill? How do we miss this? How do we allow it? Okay. Incongruities, right? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. In this country, come on. Uh, We live in a world where a young man named Bill Gates would become one of the wealthiest men in the world after dropping out of college to start a software company. And we read in the Bible the ultimate incongruity that a lamb that's been slaughtered, the symbol of weakness and defeat, stands alive and powerful and is the prince of heaven. Now, what you and I've got to catch here is that God does things that sometimes don't make sense to me just about every day. You know what? And he'll even do things in my life, if I'll give him an opportunity to, that kind of don't make sense, that don't seem to be possible. My question is, you is are you open to God's incongruities functioning in your life I think I I need to be right okay let's read on if somebody would let's go to verse 8 and read down through 13 Wow, it ought to make you say amen, you know? Now, let's look at it for just a minute here, um, kind of the action here. There, there is worship going on in heaven around the throne of God. It's led by the four creatures that are described in, um, that are, the creatures that are described in chapter 4. Uh, they're kind of interesting creatures, but it's also being, it, uh, being entered into early on in this particular part of the passage by the 24 elders. Okay, and they've got something in their hands. What do they got? They've got bowls. All right. Now it's key here, the bowls that they're carrying and what's in them, but it's also key. You remember chapter four, the song was sung, worthy is our God. There is a new song in chapter five. And it's being sung by the same forces of people. And they're going to be joined by an angelic host. In about one, 
you get, by the way, I wasn't around then, okay, but in 111 AD, all right, um, I wasn't around then. It was just before I was born, but uh, okay, 111 AD, uh, a, uh, a Roman official, a Roman emissary by the name of Pliny the Younger, all right, which implies that there must have been a Pliny the Older, and probably Pliny the Middle-Aged, but I don't know, anyway, Pliny the Younger was an emissary of the Emperor Trajan in the, in the second century A.D., and he was charged to study the Jewish people somewhat, and to, in particular, study this cult of Judaism that has been kind of known as the way or Christianity. Pliny writes back to the emperor of Rome. So this is official documentation, right? It's in the Library of Congress in Rome, I suppose, right? And he writes back and he says, one of the, one of the interesting marks of these people who follow the way is that they sing hymns not only to God, but to Christ as God. That's a very interesting distinction. That the early church was not just singing to God, then sings my soul, my uh, Savior God to thee, how great thou art. But they're also singing hymns of praise to Jesus. The main character in this story today, right? This imagery. And that's exactly the same thing now that's going to go on with the four and twenty elders and these worship leading creatures from chapter four. They're going to they're going to not only praise God the Father, but now they're praising in the halls of heaven God the Son. Let me. This answers the question for you. When a worship leader here or anywhere else asks you to sing to Jesus or sing about Jesus, is it okay? You bet. You bet. All right? Now, let's go back to the bowls. Let's read, read a couple of things about them. Uh, would somebody go to Psalm 141, verse 2? Psalm 141, verse 2. Who will get there? Okay, Eileen, you're going to go back to that? That'd be great. I'm going to go to chapter 8, if you'll go with me, just a couple of pages to the right in uh, Revelation. Another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer. Now, what's a censer? That's, uh, that's something that, that burns incense. And much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Now, if you've grown up in um, a, a highly liturgical church, you might be used to uh, incense burned during worship. Here's the imagery even from the book of Revelation. Uh, Eileen, would you read Psalm 141, verse 2? The psalmist is going to help us connect the dots with what's the deal with smoke and incense and bolts. Yeah. All right, the idea, now what you've got to catch here is that in these bowls are your prayers. In these bowls are the prayers, initially in this image, they are the prayers of God's people in trouble. And I want you to catch, if I'm catching it right, Who's going to deal with those bowls full of prayer? Who is it? The Lamb. The Lamb. Okay, Let, let's go on for a minute. I'll, I'll make, a, make a point about that in just a minute. All right? The Lamb will respond to the prayers of God's people. Can I tell you something? He still is. 
He still is. All of heaven sings a new song. What is it? It's, it's similar in language to chapter 4. Worthy, but now it's worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Why? Because of the cross. Interesting. And those who can join in the song, we'll see others join in the song by the end, are really all nations. Says So tells us that in verse 9. Now, he says in verse 10, I don't want to read it out of the uh, New American Standard here. Uh, chapter 5, verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So the idea here is um, that we are made to live in a kingdom as priests. Peter says it in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He says, um, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Okay, I'm going to come back to this idea in a minute, but I want, what I want you to catch the idea of is that you are, are, have been proclaimed as a follower of Jesus Christ. You've been claimed a priest in your own right. You don't have to have one. Okay, Now, let's go on. Who's singing? In verse 11, a bunch of angels. How many? 10,000 times 10,000. Now, what you and I need to understand, I don't know this firsthand, I know it from study, but you need to understand that, that in the Greek language, the highest number that they would ever really express is 10,000. So he takes the highest number and multiplies it by that number again. By the way, I just saw somebody that I need to say hello to. Rick Beeler, it is so good to have you home with us and your little bride. It's just so good to have you guys here. Rick was part of CBMC here for years, and we ran into each other at Panera Bread like three times a week. And he'd be over there praying and, and working with people. And uh, you guys are now where? Cleveland, Tennessee. Cleveland, Tennessee. 900 miles east. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, you got it tracked. Well, it's so good to have you here. Uh, they're with the Kennedys this weekend, and, and uh, just good to have you guys here. I meant to recognize that while going. I didn't. Now, Who's singing? 10,000 times 10,000. One, uh, if, if I did my math right, 100 million angels. Now, by the way, every one of them has a big mouth. It's interesting. Can you imagine? It says they're singing, all of them, with a loud voice. You haven't heard this kind of noise. You'll never hear this kind of noise this side of that throne room. You hear me? A hundred million loud angels, and they're singing to your Jesus. <laughs> I hope you catch the beauty of that. Now, what is the lamb, according to verse 12, worthy to receive? All kinds of stuff. Let's take it apart just for a second. Just for a minute, let's take it apart. He is worthy to receive... Power that suggests the ability to accomplish what his will is. He's worthy to receive wealth that indicates riches, the possession of all the resources needed to rule, and literally all the, all the riches in the universe. He's able to receive or worthy to receive wisdom, the attribute of a noble ruler who brings blessing. He's able to bring strength. Strength parallels power, but it's a little different. It's suggesting not just abstract power, but power to do what I came to do. And he's going to receive from you and me and from the gathered host of heaven honor and glory and praise and blessing. 
whatever any king has ever received in the annals of history in this world is just an inkling of the honor that Jesus receives in heaven. Verse 13, I want to read it. And every created thing which is on heaven and under the earth. Mikey, Mike, I want, you to t- I want you to go home and tell Kim that I think there will be dogs in heaven. Uh, she's known that. She's taken me on on that. Every created thing. It's interesting that whatever is left out of creation, uh, on the earth, in the sea, under the earth, whatever. It kind of, kind of parallels that beautiful passage from Philippians 2 where every knee bow- bows on the earth and under the earth. Every creation, all of can you imagine the stars singing? That's the idea. All of creation worships. We get a wide angle lens of heaven here. All creatures, uh, all creatures, all of God's creation, all the universe. And I got to ask the question: Who are they praising? The Lamb that was slain. The only one worthy to take the book. The only one worthy. To give my life to. Now, okay, here's a couple of questions to close with. Ready? If you were to begin to acting like a priest, what changes would that entail? I used to sing a song that I'm kind of sad that I sang, but I liked it a lot. But it wasn't true. It said, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, not according to the Bible. You're a priest. Okay? What would it be like if I started acting like a priest? How does this biblical picture of heaven change your view of what eternity will be like? We get a great picture of it from John. Now, if this is the picture of how it will be at the end of time, then shouldn't I make some changes now? By the way, I saw Jesus yesterday. Tall, beautiful flowing brown hair and a really nice beard. He was uh, loading cars at the garden center at Home Depot. <laughs> this guy really could play a great Jesus, whoever it was I saw. But, but I remember it, it kind of started me. It was like, Lord, is that what you're really going to look like? You know, tanned and tall. And I don't know. What I do know is this, that when I see him finally, I'm going to want to be with him. And I'm going to want to be like him. And I'm going to want to be part of his, co- his company. Can I ask you this? Do you know this Jesus? <laughs> do you know my Jesus? Do you know this one? The one the Bible says. The one that the Bible harmonizes from the Old Testament to the New Testament about. Here's my second question. I've been asking this for several weeks now. Do you want him? If this scene is, is consistent, and I believe it is, if you don't want him now, you're going to want him then. I uh, sat in a funeral service on Friday afternoon at uh, First Southern Baptist Church. I hadn't been there in a long time. And I remembered sit, while sitting there, while I was in seminary, a guy by the name of Gary Mathena, wrote a, who was the minister of music there, wrote a song that was very meaningful to me during those days. He wrote this beautiful song um, that basically said, and I, I don't want to misquote it. It was quoting Jesus, and he says, When you come to the place that I'm all you have, 
you'll find I'm all you need. Who do you need this morning? When you come to the place where he's all you've got, guess what? The Bible says this. You will never be disappointed. I can promise you that. Okay, we in Zechariah 9, Matthew 21 next week. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.